Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. You're not doing this because you want to make money. You do it because it clicks in your soul. It's probably who your parents were, who your grandparents were. It's not because the money's good. Money's shitty. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. When you drive into Pinedale, Wyoming, the welcome sign says, Pinedale, all the civilization you need. When artist Sue Summers arrived in town in the early 90s, after growing up in New Jersey, moving around internationally with her dad's job, and going to art school, she was surprised to find Pinedale was all the civilization she needed. I felt like I could live here, I could live somewhere else, it doesn't really matter. But... When happenstance brought me to Pinedale and I needed to stay for a while, I noticed that I could start contributing to the community and participating in the community and people would welcome me. Mm -hmm. As long as uh, if I said I was going to bring the brownies and I brought the brownies, I was in. Yeah. People, people like that when you follow through. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started acquiring friends, and, and I worked at the Pinedale Roundup. And when you work at the local newspaper, you meet everybody. And, and I had never felt that relevant mm-hmm. to a place before. Sue now lives about eight miles out of town on a multi-generational cattle ranch. Her husband, Albert, grew up on this land and is now the Republican Speaker of the House in the Wyoming legislature. Late last summer, I visited them at home and met their dog, Kiki, named for artist Kiki Smith. Their house is a double-wide trailer with this big addition built off the front with floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking wide-open hay fields, the Green River, and mountain peaks on the far horizon. That's Sue's artist studio, what you see when you look to the left from their front door. Look to the right, and you see two cozy recliners with hunting trophies hung on the wall, a bull moose and a bighorn sheep ram that Albert got. Just down the hill is the house where a young rancher lives with his wife and kids, who's taken over the summer's cattle business and will inherit it when they're gone, even though he's no blood relation. I have no kids, right? We have no kids. You can't take land with you to the grave. I'm just the latest caretaker of this. You know, there's been other caretakers. 
I want somebody to take care of it. I came to talk to Albert and Sue about this, the plans for this place, the family ranch, and this land, and what drew them together at 40 when they got married. When's your wedding date? When is your anniversary? December 4th, 1999. And where'd you get married? What was the wedding like? It was it was enormous because um, Albert's family is really well known in the community, and he wanted to have a very community friendly event. It was like anyone who wants to come, come. Uh, and so, literally, we, an ad in the newspaper. Yeah. Oh, is that come right? one, come all. Yeah, the Boulder invitation was Center. in the newspaper. <laughs> What's the name of the newspaper where the ad was? That was in the Pinedale Roundup. Albert's family has deep roots in this part of Wyoming. Since the late 19th century, his family's been part of what's known as the Green River Drift, a cattle drive about 70 miles long on horseback in the summer to lush green grass that's grown under mountain snowmelt. As the weather cools, the cows make their way back or drift to the ranches where they started. Today, they go home after each day's drive. The next morning, they trailer their horses. The Green River Drift is on the National Register of Historic Places. 60 Minutes did a piece last year, marking its 125th anniversary. The old chuck wagon, it's been replaced by a cooler and the tailgate of a pickup truck. Albert was a bookish kid. And even with asthma and allergies to hay and horses, he was put to work on the ranch. You start from an early age. I mean, my dad told stories about having to help dig the ditches with a Fresno and driving a team when he was six years old. Wow. You know, my sister was probably six years old when she started haying. The ranch was just your whole life. You know, the table talk was the ranch. The evening, you know, whatever was the ranch. It was just really who we are. Still, when he finished high school, Albert left to go to college and study electrical engineering. He wasn't sure that running the ranch was something he wanted to do. He left the land, but he also felt like he was a different sort of man than his father. When my dad walked into the corral in the morning when it was dark, you know, when you catch your horse, and when he yelled, whoa, everybody stopped. The chickens stopped. (laughs) Mom stopped. I stopped. The horses stopped. Uh But when I was a junior in college, um, my dad had a horse wreck. A horse died underneath him, Hmm. and it slapped his head on the ground, and he got a severe head injury. And uh, and it changed the family dynamics forever Mm -hmm. um, because he never was the same man. He He was still my dad. But it was a right-angle turn almost. Hmm. Did you experience, after your dad's injury, this sense of you're the son, you're the next generation, you need to come on back? Or was it? did you feel like that was up to you? I felt to a degree it was up up to me, but I felt an incredible pull. Um, some of it was because my dad was hurt, and a lot of it was the place. You know, my, my grandfather died in a, in a field, in the cabin field, 
You know, my dad was born in that ranch house down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an obligation. I also feel very, I guess, uh, I feel very lucky to have had that obligation in this this place. It's pretty special. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm a crier. <laughs> Crying's welcome. <laughs> you know, the only cool job that that was out there that I thought was really neat was Hewlett Packard, but there was only one slot and I wasn't the guy, you know. So so that was that. But I, you know, I, I got here and I got back on the ranch and and uh and I dug in and I just I really don't regret it. And you were like twenty one, twenty two? 21, 22. What was like a week like? Would you wake up at the same time of day every every day? How many hours were you working a day? What were your weekends like? So, you know, yeah, weekends. <laughs> <laughs> What's a weekend? Yeah. You know, I remember a year when I maybe took two half days off the entire year. Hmm. I don't mean week, you know, that plus weekends. I mean, that was it. So I I don't think I fully had this in my head, Albert. So I'm imagining it's about 20 years of you being a single man, being back on the family ranch, working really hard. Um, How did you, what did you notice about Sue that you decided you might want to make some time for her? You know, I think I was maybe 38, and I woke up one day and I went, you know, there's more to this, you know. And uh, it was a tough headspace for me. And, uh, And so, you know, I made a conscious effort that I was not gonna die alone, if possible, um, as so many ranchers have. Oh, that was like a, you could, you knew what that looked like. I've seen that. I I, uh, buried an uncle like that this, earlier this year, 90 years old, never was married. Yeah, so then I met Sue. When you noticed Albert noticing you, did you have a sense that he was kind of looking for a serious long-term partnership? (laughs) Um, That's such a great question. Because I guess he was kind of stalking me and I didn't even know it. Because he couldn't, he could never work up the guts to talk to me. So, so I and I would sort of see, I sort of see him off in the periphery, you know? And, um, he finally came up and talked to me at a meeting, a BLM meeting in town. And so I showed up just to see what was going on. And and Albert walks up to me, introduces himself. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. And, and we just start talking. And pretty soon we're sitting next to each other talking. And we don't care what the other people are saying at the front of the room. And it was, you know, really great chemistry right away. So like your first date is sitting in chairs at a Bureau of Land Management <laughs> public 
common most hearing pro- about energy most development. Most productive <laughs> meeting I ever had with the federal government in my life. And I had the long cave woman hair at the uh-huh. time. You know, yeah. guys love that. And uh, <laughs> boy, she looked pretty good. And it was tricky because all of Albert's neighbors and buddies were like sitting in rows in front of us and behind us. And they could see we were sitting next to each other like, like talking. And and uh, so, uh, were were you going to finish this story or should I? <laughs> you do. I, I always finish this story. Um, well, I I thought you know he hasn't really asked me out or anything, but we really need to keep talking. Hmm. Um, how am I going to do that without like all of these these um, very uh, rough and tumble cowboys seeing it, uh-huh. you know, and then giving him a hard time oh, uh-huh. or making me feel weird. Uh, and so I waited till the meeting was, the last meeting was over and we were all kind of filing out and I just made sure I kind of stayed kind of close behind him. And we got outside the library, and it was starting to get dark. And I kind of looked around. I didn't see any of those guys, you know. And and I said, um, would you like to continue our conversation? Albert's eyes filled up with tears again. <laughs> and yeah, it was like high beams, you know, in his eyes. <laughs> it was great. Uh... Were you like trying to think of what to say also, and then she, and but didn't quite yeah, have the words. Yeah, I'm always really shy around women. And uh, so I couldn't think of anything. Did it feel like an answered prayer when she said, do you want to continue this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, people probably don't think of me as a religious man around here because I, uh, I don't go to church. But I prayed at night, and one of the things I prayed for was to meet somebody, to share my life with. And you didn't just meet her, you met somebody gutsy enough to make the first move. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's no kidding. Back then, Sue was known around town for driving this Chevy Astro van. Inside the windshield, you could see these naked Barbie dolls she'd arranged across the dash as a kind of feminist art installation. And she was living alone in a house on a plot of land she'd bought working at the newspaper. Moving to the ranch was going to be different. Did you have a moment where you were like, I'm not sure I'm a ranch wife? (laughs) Oh, did she? (laughs) But I think it was that right. Right after we got married. You know, we only courted for a year, which for some people, that's a a way long time. Other people not. I mean, we didn't live together or anything before we got married, which um, I kind of wish we had because to me that just is common sense. But I I don't know what I was thinking, but (laughs) after we were married, I got a full education in the rancher's schedule. And if I didn't go out with him working, we didn't have a conversation. Uh huh. It was um, quite an adjustment, and I had to uh, have some kind of hard conversations with Albert about, like, are you are you a workaholic because you have to be, 
or a workaholic because you want to be. And what would he say? A little of both. Uh. Like he he admitted, like he yeah, had to, he had to confess that it was kind of scary being in a house with a with a wife for the first time in his life, and and it was easier to just like go feed cows. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> there's some boy. There's some truth to that. Um, I knew that we were really different. He knew we were really different, and I asked him pretty early on. You know, uh, it might have been after you proposed. I'm not really sure, but we had that conversation before we got married. Like, I'm not gonna be baking biscuits every morning. No, 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 no. You have it. You your memory's incorrect. Oh, <laughs> I so, th- well, we'll see. We'll see. So we were coming back from our honeymoon, and we were in the airport, and I'm looking at you, and you're like gloom and doom, and I go, "What's the matter? I mean, you, you look really sad." And she goes, Sue goes, just so you know, I'm not going to take care of you. <laughs> and, uh, and then she went, you know, she says, this, that's not my life. You know, I did tell you, I will always be on your side. Yes. But I'm not going to take care of you. Coming up, how Albert and Sue thought about getting older together and what that meant for the ranch. You know, I knew that uh, there was finality in me dying and there was going to be somebody was going to own this ranch. And I knew I didn't want to see it developed. You look out this window. Can you imagine 500 houses out there? How about a golf course like the one down the river? You know, I... I just, I just can't imagine that happening. This episode you're listening to right now is in many ways about what gets passed down through generations. Land, money, expectations to uphold certain customs and traditions— And here at Death, Sex, and Money, we've been thinking about these themes a lot as we've been collecting your stories about inheritance. The United States is in the middle of a historic wealth transfer as the very resourced boomers come to the end of their lives, and some in the younger generations are seeing their lives transformed. I inherited about $400,000 when I was 30 years old. My father who is worth about $70 million, told me that if I spoke publicly about my childhood, then he would disinherit me. I feel like the pressure that comes with upwards of $50 million is sometimes really scary. I'm afraid of being like those lotto winners who end up just whiling it away. We've heard from a lot of you who stand to inherit a lot of money about the responsibility and questions that come with that. We still want to hear from those of you who are not in that situation, 
If in your family, inheritance has never been in the cards, how has knowing you don't have a future safety net shaped the way you've thought about money and spending throughout your life? And how do you think about the people around you who do have that safety net? Record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We're still accepting inheritance stories of all kinds about what you've noticed about how it is shaping your life and your relationships with others. And we especially want to hear from you if you are not a woman. We've heard from a lot of women so far. Again, record a voice memo about your experiences with inheritance and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Albert and Sue Summers got married, they had a prenup. Albert and his sister were to co-own the ranch after their parents were gone. Sue wasn't going to own any of the business. And Albert's sister doesn't have children. So for Sue and Albert, getting married at 40, they had to decide quickly whether they wanted to try to become parents. I I never wanted kids. Uh I would have contemplated it if... Albert had felt really strongly. I would have thought about it. He seemed really ambivalent. And um, we had only been married for about four or five months, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. I was really lucky because I was at a super early stage. So going through that treatment and kind of coming back out of that, the radiation and and, uh, trying to get my strength back, um, by the time all that was really behind me, um, I was closer to 45 than 40. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that, that is going to be another m- medical odyssey. And I don't really want one of those right now. And having kids isn't that important to me. So, um, I, I really enjoy other people's kids. And I have nieces and nephews that I really love. Um, But, uh, yeah, and Albert and I haven't really talked about it that much um, over the course of our marriage. I don't know if he is really sad now or uh, still ambivalent or what. I don't have deep regrets over it. I mean, when we got married, you got a ranch and you got parents that are aging It was just a lot. I had a lot on my plate. I mean, Sue had cancer, right? She's got cancer surgery coming up. It's on my neighbor's branding date. I'm weighing the two, right? I've got this obligation as a rancher to always be at my neighbor's branding or at my neighbor's call when they call 
And I got my wife that's having cancer surgery. And for him, that was a hard decision. And for me, it was a hard decision. And, and for me, that was really hard to see. Yeah. And for her, it was really hard to see. And, uh, <laughs> of course, I made the right decision. And Did your uh, neighbor understand? Oh, totally. Uh-huh. I told Albert, uh, Michael's wife is going to see you at her branding dinner, and you're going to say that you're— No, it was Charles. Okay. Char- oh, even more so. Deanne is a good friend of mine now, especially. Anyway, um, if Deanne sees you at her branding dinner and knows that you are there instead of with me, she's going to be really mad. She's going to, like, kick you out of her house. Yeah, it's I interesting mean, you, used, you used the pressure of the community judgment <laughs> as the, another, like— you, Right. Yeah. The community judgment isn't you need to be at the branding dinner. The community judgment is you need to be with your wife. It's an internalized... This internal obligation in my head for everything ranching. Mm -hmm. So anything that Sue, and, you know, to her credit, she stuck with me. Anything that Sue wants me to pull away from that, the first thing out of my mouth is no. And that's fairly general to everybody on everything. The first words out of my mouth are no. (laughs) Um... And then I kind of warm up to ideas, you know. And uh, But the ranch, I was raised that the ranch was the, the most important thing in your life. It was your life. And this was an example of, you know, how that doesn't work, that it, philosophy. Well, and it's not just your ranch. I mean, this is your neighbor's branding day. So the sense of an obligation to what a rancher does for your own ranch and for the community of ranchers. Yeah. And it's really true. And and I think, I don't know if we're, I think we're losing that a bit, but I grew up, I grew up with a sense of obligation to my neighbor as much or more than even our own place. That neighbor's cow is just as important as your cow, and you take care of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you take care of your neighbor. This is changing in Wyoming. The Summers Ranch is in a county right next to Teton County, where Jackson Hole is, which has the distinction of being both the wealthiest and most unequal county in America. Very wealthy people live in this part of Wyoming or have vacation homes here or buy up land as part of their investment portfolios. Who's going to be the next largest landowner in America? Who's going to, you know, have the next biggest ranch? And I get pretty uh, condescending and cynical when I, when I think about it. And I, and I can't blame them, right? They got all this money. They don't want to live in a city all the time. They buy a place. I totally get it. Um, it's just ruining, in my opinion, it's just ruining where I'm, where I'm at. I mean, I, I always think about how some of these folks, they want to live this kind of cowboy dream. They have this fantasy. And to me, that's so disrespectful of the people who actually have done the work. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and have lived that life and know what it means. The new buyers aren't doing the work. They're watching somebody else do the work. 
Um, or sometimes they're just um, uh, being absentee landlords. You got, you'll have a neighbor that's a billionaire that owns all this land by you or close to you. They don't even want to know who you are. Uh-huh. You know, they don't want to be a part of the community. Where ranchers were so involved in the community and so involved with each other, the new ranchers are coming from a place where they want to be away from people. Uh-huh. You know, and, and the old ranchers clung together because that was the only way we are going to be around people. Because on the ranch, you're not around anybody. So to be around people, you had to be around your neighbors. Well, now your neighbors don't want to be around you. These new rich neighbors, they've increased the value of Albert's family land. And that increased development pressure to turn that land into cash right when Albert and his sister were making plans for what would come after them. You know, when my, my mom died in 2006, that's when, you know, I sat my sister down at the kitchen table and I go, what do you want to do with this place, you know? And I said, I've got an idea. And that idea was to uh, sell a conservation easement on the place. A conservation easement. It's a way to turn the value of your land into money without selling and developing it. You get money from the feds, the state, and conservation groups, in Albert's case, if you agree to conserve open space and critical wildlife habitat and migration pathways— instead of cashing in on the land by subdividing it into vacation homes or building a golf course. And it can also make continuing the tough business of ranching more feasible. If this brought in enough money, then we would have the ability to pass this down to somebody else, this ranch down to somebody else. Because if you get money out of the conservation easement, we would have some money in our later years to to live on and the ranch could belong to somebody else. When Albert and his sister did this in 2010, along with a next-door neighbor with even more acreage, it was a new thing in Albert's part of Wyoming, with some stigma to it. This is a part of the country that is suspicious of rules, and a conservation easement means you're agreeing to a bunch of them. The worst stigma is just selling out. It seems like, you know, when somebody sells, everybody's like, uh. And there's also a little bit of resentment, you know, that they they gave up, right? They Uh quit. The Summers family didn't want to quit. But again, they didn't have any heirs to take on their cattle business. Instead, Albert and his sister made a deal with a young rancher who grew up nearby for him to get the ranch. We're able to give this ranch to another generation. And he owns 90% of the ranch right now. And uh, they've got two little kids. We get to do, you know, we get to live here and do all this stuff. I I get $1,000 a month. That's my pay, whether I work or not. Um, So, you know, he pays some. And my sister gets to stay in that house until she dies. And we we get to run a, a little small bunch of purebred Herefords uh, within the ranch. And uh, so that's kind of the deal we get. And uh, then he gets the rest, you know. And it's not like sometimes I think I've, you know, you just give him a headache, right? I mean, 
we're giving him an opportunity, but it's a tough thing. I mean, it's hard on him, right? And uh, it's not easy work, you know, and you're sitting here with two old curmudgeons, you know, or three with Sue. She's not much of a curmudgeon, <laughs> um, you know, that have their own opinions and their own ways. And, and uh, you know, it, you know, and I'm, I'm learning to step back from that. You know, I think I'm getting better. At it. You know, he's got to make his own mistakes. I made mine. I mean, that, that's a big choice to decide not to cash out on the land value and to instead think about the values on the land that you wanted to help preserve. But then to, to gift a business. that's key, right? Yeah. The value of the land itself in your heart is worth so much. You know, it's just, it's worth more than the money you get out of it. This is peace I'm going to have going to the grave. Yeah. What price tag do you put on that? It seems like you are articulating a set of values higher, a set of higher values above capitalism. (laughs) Isn't that what every rancher does? Why would you be in the cow business when you can cash all this in? Right? The reason is, is you love the place you are in. You love the people you're doing it with. And you love the animals that you you have care for. It's who you are. It it makes you feel good. After the easement came through, the future of the ranch was more clear. Um, What did it change for you and how you thought about how you might spend your 50s into your 60s and on? Like how you imagined this time of your life? What became possible? What became possible is for both Albert and me to think about each of us what our dream really was for life and work. And just as Albert was able to enter politics, I was able to kind of gradually shut down my graphic design business and make more art. Albert has served in the Wyoming legislature since 2013. He became Speaker of the House last year, leading a body that is overwhelmingly Republican. And just like in Congress, those Republicans are often at loggerheads about the direction of the party. I really believe in the institutions and the process. These processes and these institutions are what keep us, our democracy, intact and when you assault the institution, when you use incivility to diminish the institution, really what you're doing is diminishing your ability to solve problems and have a democracy. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to be bullied. Um, I'm not going to be intimidated by people. They can think they can, but it ain't going to happen. i got too many hard heads in my background to, <laughs> to, uh, to be intimidated. And, and you know, what I also think is kind of nifty is that, um, you know, we have a mixed marriage, right? I, I lean pretty liberal. Albert leans conservative. And uh, we understand that it, there isn't a my way or the highway solution to anything. And, and it, takes, it takes us a meeting in the middle to get things done and to have a healthy relationship, really. 
And I really love that we can disagree and then we can uh, sometimes not agreeably, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, we, but we keep talking until we understand each other. And if we can uh, make a compromise, that's what we do. And, you know, so far there have only been a few things where we're never going to agree on X, Y, or Z. Um, and and it, you can live with that. I really appreciate her mind and her brain and her ability to think. Um, it's it's uh, very unique. I mean, she's incredibly bright lady. Now she says, well, if I'm so damn bright, why don't you listen to me? Well, that Just do what I say. That ain't how it works, girl. <laughs> but uh, and I can tell when he's doing that, so I kind of so she can. I change, I change my tack when that happens. You know, like like I I back off. I kind of soften my rhetoric and and I try to instead of just the fire hose at Albert. So the other strong women in my life, I learned when they got in that. Full on to just back off, right? Just go feed the cows. Yeah, yeah, clam up. Say no more. You don't clam up with soup because no. it pushes a button. And and I and I, I still do it, but I always pay for it. Uh. It's going, you know, no, you're going to keep talking to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and that's... Uh, that's because you're continuing the conversation. That's the deal. That's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the deal. That's Albert and Sue Summers on the Summers Ranch outside Pinedale, Wyoming. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by me and Andrew Dunn. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our intern is Ellie McKay. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Follow us on Instagram at Death Sex Money, and I'm at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. For all their differences, Sue told me there's one thing she recognized in Albert early on. Uh, trying to be an artist is almost as crazy as trying to be a rancher. <laughs> it's like, what were we thinking? You know, well, neither, neither way of life uh, is fair or easy or profitable but it's what we want to do. We're willing to make sacrifices to do it. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.